even though he ended up being 100% right. He came to be known as the weeping prophet. But it is precisely in the darkness of the life of Jeremiah. It's that kind of darkness that allows us to see that there's real hope in God's faithfulness. See, we not only have his prophecies recorded in the book bearing his name, but we actually have Jeremiah's final memoir of everything he thought and experienced the destruction of his beloved city and the murder of his people by the Babylonians. Uh, the book of Lamentations is Jeremiah in the lowest low of his entire life in ministry. He's looking around at, at the calamitous after effects of the destruction of Jerusalem, which he knew was going to happen. He warned them. The Jews kept, the Judah kept rejecting God. And God warned them, destruction came. And he's there, and he's trying to, to desperately make sense of all of this. He's trying to keep his head above the water in the midst of it. He's trying to find hope in utter ruin. And he's there. Because covered by the blankets, the blanket of the darkest night you can imagine, and the deepest dream, he finds a brilliant ray of the light of God's face pierces to the blue of despair and gives him overwhelming hope. And to get the whole picture, I want to give you a little context. Kind of a very, very short history of the kingdom of Israel. Okay? So, in about 1010 BC, David begins to reign over Israel. Right? And David reigns for 40 years. He's a good king, for the most part. A few glitches along the way. But uh, he uh, brings peace to Israel, and his son takes over Solomon, who has a peaceful reign. He completes the temple for God, 966. And under Solomon, Israel is at the height of his power, right, and influence and wealth. And he's so powerful and wealthy that the queen of Sheba comes to just marvel at how wise Solomon was and how amazing his wealth was. Well, Solomon was apparently wise, and Solomon was apparently wealthy, and Solomon was apparently had a great kingdom. He wasn't a very good father, because his son is a moron, and splits the kingdom. In fact, if you read those chapters about Rehoboam, whoever wrote them really wanted to tell you just how, how Rehoboam could get. He did not learn to the kingdom in 931 is divided between the northern and southern kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And for a couple hundred years, right, the southern point you see this, you read through the period, there's some, there's mostly bad kings. There's a few good kings. There's a few ones, a few good ones in there who want to honor God and follow the law. For the most part, they're bad. They're idol worshippers. They're terrible. And then the northern kingdom in 722, which was extra terrible, is destroyed by the Assyrians. And in 586 BC, the southern kingdom, Judah, Jerusalem, the temple, is besieged and destroyed by the Babylonians. Now I have to understand, when you look at that history, that 
The destruction of Jerusalem and everything that happened, it was a long time coming. As soon as the kingdom divided and Israel and Judah began their prolonged spiral in decline, they went into sin and rebellion, God started to warn them. He sent them prophets. He sent them prophet after prophet. For 345 years, God sends them message after message. And for the most part,
city blessed by God. And now, wobble. Sitting alone. The widow. The lonely widow. Wondering, still after the years, hoping to find the love. It was great among the nations. This was a great city at one time. Described her as a princess, but now she's like a slave. Weeping bitterly in the night. Imagine the weeping in the city, destruction, people killed, and death, the smell of all. Feel the tears running down the faces of the people in the left. Seeing the horror. Nobody to comfort her. She's to turn from God and gone after other lovers. Turn to worshiping idols and trusting other nations and care for her. And where were they now? Though she thought of her friends, and now he goes on, verse 3 and 4. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The robes design mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins are afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. You know, one time the roads come to Jerusalem several times a year would have been filled with people coming to worship God at the feast, right? The Passover and the Feast of the Tabernacles and the, all those things, Yom Kippur. It was meant to be a place of worship and praise and joy. And now, the roads are filled with people fleeing to their lives for being drugged away as slaves by the nations that surround them. The gates would have been where the elders of the city one time would meet and pronounce judgments and make rules. The desolate, lying in burned room, torn down and burned. So the priest groaned and says, the virgins have been afflicted being kind of describing what happened to the women who were taken to slaves. The city suffered greatly. She's not just a city, that's bad enough, that's horrible. Jeremiah has given the unenviable task of warning Judah for her sins, so this is also personal. Jeremiah tried to warn them, but Judah had no intention of stopping. It was like Jeremiah was on a runway train trying to pull brakes. Brakes didn't work. Not the locomotive went, right? Right off the edge of the cliff. Jeremiah just belongs to the rock. So we've got to have to forgive him if he takes it a little personal. Because chapter 3 starts Jeremiah's lament over Jeremiah. The first two chapters are his lament over the city and its people. But now, it's personal. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. Am I hurting? His pain extends to every fiber of his being. His body hurts. His mind reels. His heart is pained so deeply he can barely catch his breath. Feels the pain right through the very soul. Look at verses 14 to 20. 
I have become a laughing stock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He's filled me with bitterness. He saved me with wormwood. He's made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished, so does my hope in the Lord. Remember my afflictions and my wanderings and the wormwood and gall my soul continually remembers. He's bowed down.
persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long, we regard the sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The sum of that passage is simply this. For the person who loves God, there is nothing, because he's already done everything for us through Christ dying and rising again. There is nothing that can somehow separate us from the love that God has shown us in Christ. If we have trusted Christ, there is nothing anywhere in the universe, somewhere, somehow, that's going to destroy his love for us. Or somehow cause him to reject us. He's not going to sit up in heaven somewhere and all of a sudden one day he's going to look down and he's going to go, Joel, I'm just out of here. No. Not at all. <laughs> Nothing can separate us. I think anyone or anything can do. There's no power in the universe, he says. If it's God who saved us through Jesus, nothing that any power in the universe, nothing that we do is going to separate us from that. His steadfast love, his faithfulness. Look at what the writer of Hebrews says. Chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. He's talking about Jesus here. He says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what the name of you. Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. He is hesed. He is unshakably faithful. No matter how bad it gets, no matter how dark it looks, no matter how the world is burning down around us, even our, our bad choices are part of what started the fire, and that's what happened in Jeremiah, their bad choices. We can turn to him because he will never turn to us. I will never leave you for your safety. Then when it says the Lord is my helper, the word that occurs there only occurs in this spot in the testament. Comes from the verb, based on the verb to run. And has the idea of running into the battle of someone who defends. Thank you. 
Jeremiah, who is the 